The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken from Job, the book of Job. And we'll be reading Job chapter 1, the verses 1 to 5, which you'll be able to find on page 576 of your pew Bible. This is in connection with the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, which we'll be covering this afternoon. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. So far the word of God. Let's now together in connection with this read also from the Heidelberg Catechism, the third commandment as we find it summarized and explained in Lord's Day 36 and you'll be able to find that on page 553 of your book of praise. What is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly. For no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, there's a famous series of pictures which comments on how the workplace affects the home. In the first panel, you have a boss yelling at his employee. And then the employee comes home and yells at his wife. And then the wife, she yells at the children. And then you see in the final picture, the child is kicking the dog. The point of this series of pictures was mainly work-related, to bring the attention of people on to how a workplace environment affects the home. But it also showed another truth. This gives us a second truth as well. This is the truth that the father can have a powerful impact in setting the tone of the home. It's not easy to provide for a family day in and day out. And it's been that way since the fall into sin 
where man was cursed to work by the sweat of his brow. But the way in which we choose to respond to the stress that we bring home with us can have ripple effects that span generations. On the other hand, choices that we make can have a positive effect as well. Have you ever gone into a workplace or a school or college or seminary in which people were genuinely happy about the way things went? Have you spoken with people who said, oh, we have a lot of fun there together. It's always a party. This isn't to say that they don't work hard. In fact, in many such places, people pull long hours and put in tons of effort. But the point is that they specifically put in extra effort to shape a good culture of joy, kindness, patience, and love motivated by service to God and by appreciation for each other. This is the kind of atmosphere that parents, particularly fathers as spiritual leaders, but all parents are called to foster in the home. This isn't to say that it always has to be a party in the home, but still making a point of having a God-honoring culture there. To create an atmosphere in the home that God's name might not be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. You see, when the children look at their parents, particularly when the children look at their Father in heaven, they see a small picture. They, when, particularly when they look at their father, they see a small picture of their father in heaven. They see a small picture of who he is and the way in which he cares for us. This is something to reflect on as we look after our children. What kind of picture are they getting? When we speak of them about our Father in heaven, what kind of picture are they getting? Today we'll reflect a little bit of this aspect of home life and look at our passage here in Job 1, all in light of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we'll do this under the following theme, Job, honoring God's name in the home. Now, as we opened up our passage, you may have noticed something that stood out to you a little bit, a point that maybe was even confusing for you. Have you ever read these first verses of Job and wondered what's going on here? Here you have Job, who is a man that is honorable and upright, and he's, he's seen that way throughout the land. He's been financially blessed by the Lord. He's very wealthy. And he's also been incredibly blessed with a large number of children. God's been gracious to him. And yet, what do we find in these opening verses? We find the children taking turns hosting feasts. And then we find that after every feast, Job offers a sacrifice. Hmm, you might think. What is going on at these parties that Job is so concerned that he needs to offer a sacrifice? The answer to this question is that the Bible doesn't tell us 
outright. We don't have any passages in which it speaks directly about what kind of parties Job's children were hosting. But there are a number of answers that we do have as we work our way through the book of Job. First of all, we do not find a description of a regular pattern of sin going on at these parties. His Bible doesn't tell us that these were sinful in any way in particular, just that the children were feasting together. The second thing we notice as we look at these feasts that they were having together is the way that these children were looking out for each other. There were ten children in this family, and Job only has one wife, so we can safely assume that there was a reasonable spread in age between these children, as we have in all larger families. And yet, look at the way that they interact with each other. All the children invite each other to their homes. This is a sign of a beautiful level of harmony between the siblings. How many families have you run into in which the siblings won't talk to each other? Sadly, because of the way sin breaks down relationships, there are all too many of these. But here we see a family that's not just communicating together, but they want to enjoy fellowship together. There is a level of harmony here that can only be achieved by the grace of God. And it's a beautiful thing. But there's more to it than just that. The author of the book of Job makes a specific point of saying that they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now this was an unusual thing to do in that day. In a world in which women were seen as having a lesser status, they were including their sisters here as equals. They had a genuine, appreciative, and loving relationship with their sisters. And yet, you think, and yet, Job is concerned. Yes, he is concerned. But is he concerned because there's a regular pattern of sin that he sees going on? Looking at the rest of the book of Job, you would say, no, that's not the case. Now, why would you say that? The children aren't mentioned anywhere else in the book of Job, except that they're taken away from him. They die. This is exactly it. The devil is making every effort to try and attack Job, to try and smudge his character and ruin his reputation. And Job lived in a world in which the actions of the children did quite definitely reflect on the parents. And yet the devil didn't say anything about the children or Job having no control over them. We can see the same that's true for Job's friends as they later come to him. When Job has lost everything, his friends are desperately trying to find an answer for what happened. Their theology was that if something bad happened to you, you were the one who sinned. There was an action and there were consequences. There's no other reasons why bad things happened to you. You sinned. Well, Jesus himself deals later with a problem of this kind of reasoning, this kind of theology in John 9, verses 1 to 12, saying that sometimes there's more to suffering than simply the person who suffered must have sinned. But we won't get into that today. 
The point that I'd like to draw your attention to here is that Job's friends were making every effort to find some sort of sin or shortcoming on Job's part in order to have the theology that they had in their minds, this theology of suffering as punishment for sin, make sense. They would have taken advantage of Job's failures as a father and the sins of his children if there was all kinds of sinning happening here. And yet they didn't. They would have if they could, or else their whole understanding of how God deals with people would be blown up, which eventually did happen anyways. But since there was no obvious reason that they could see here, they instead pointed to the man Job himself, saying that there must be some secret sin that he's hiding, or else this wouldn't have happened to him. And yet Job is still concerned. And yet Job is still offering these sacrifices. You still haven't answered the question. This is true. So why did Job offer sacrifices? Well, let's let him speak for himself. Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. If they had acted out, Job would have been able to discipline them. If their rebellious actions had dishonored the name of God, he would have and could have corrected them. But he knew that he couldn't control their hearts. He couldn't control their hearts any more than you as parents can control the hearts of your children. You can teach them. You can discipline them. You can raise them up in the way that they should go. But at the end of the day, you cannot control their heart. Job was concerned that while they were spending time together, in feasting and in celebration, they would feel so self-assured, so happy and content that they would forget God. He was concerned of the outcome that the author of the book of Proverbs talks about in Proverbs 30, verses 8 to 9, where he writes asking God, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Children who have a secure future and don't have to worry and constantly lean on God with regards to where our next meal is coming from, which is actually pretty much every single one of us in the Western world, such children have a very real danger of falling into the trap that the man in Proverbs describes here. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? We can be so used to not actually needing to cry out to the Lord our God for our day-to-day -day survival that we forget to cry out to the Lord at all. And as we find here in this proverb, this is one more way in which we can dishonor the name of the Lord our God. 
We can so begin to go down a path in which we disown God in our hearts, thinking we don't need him, and fall into a pattern of life in which we dishonor his name. And it's these first seeds that Job is worried about. The first seeds of feeling so content, so relaxed and so happy that his children would slip into self-satisfaction and forget about God or even curse God in their hearts thinking, life is pretty good. Do I really need God? You might be thinking right now, is this a question that people actually ask? Do I, life is pretty good, do I really need God? This is a question that people ask. Ask around you. If you're like me, you'll have run into people who are sharing the gospel who responded in the same way. I don't really need God. So why should I believe in your God? The thing is that such people are people who are very open about it as you approach them. They're coming from the outside looking in. And yet there's a very real danger in which we can see this from the inside already happening among our children, among ourselves. That we can be so used to not actually needing to cry out to the Lord that we forget to cry out to him at all. And so we dishonor God in our hearts, thinking life is pretty good. Do I really need God? So what does Job do here? Job brings the hearts of his children to the Lord in prayer. Job sets them and all of us an example Reminding his children that the Lord isn't just interested in outward actions, but the Lord is interested in where our hearts lie. This was the symbol that a burnt offering gave to the people. I am giving you my everything, Lord. He understands that dishonoring the name of God doesn't begin with a life of rebelliousness, but its seed is already planted in the soil of an overly satisfied and an overly self-assured heart. A heart that says, I don't need God. And the way that he speaks to this, the way that he speaks to this in terms of his whole family dynamic is to create a culture in the home in which he openly and publicly calls on the Lord for the sake of his family. He sends up an offering for each of his children. Each of his children by name. Do you see this as a pattern in your life, beloved? Particularly you parents. Do you find yourself setting a pattern, an example in the home for your children? Do you find yourself praying for your children by name? Do you see yourself interceding before the holy throne of grace on their behalf? Do you cultivate an atmosphere in the home in which your children are are encouraged to do the same thing 
for yourselves and for each other as siblings. Grandparents, where you have the opportunity, do you pray for your grandchildren? Do you intercede before the throne of God, asking that his mercy and grace be poured out on them? Asking that he would take hold of their hearts, that they would follow him. As parents and as grandparents, we have an incredible privilege in raising our children in the fear of God's name. But it's not just left up to the parents and grandparents, although they do have the primary role in the home. But it's something that each of you children can think about too. Do I pray for my brothers and sisters? Do I come before the Lord and ask Him, please help them, be with them, guide them, watch over them, let them know you, let them love you? Especially if you see a brother or a sister who doesn't know the Lord or who is wandering away from the Lord, or who has all these questions rising up, do you pray for each other? Do we take steps in turn in the home to strive to have God's name honored and praised? To let those around us know that it's important to us to have this relationship and to go to their Father in heaven, that we all, together as a family, can honor His name with our whole hearts. It's easy to step back and to feel comfortable and to feel relaxed when our children are outwardly obedient. It's easy to breathe a sigh of relief when they're able to show you that they know the answers on an academic level, they're able to say the right words. But how certain are you of the inclinations of their hearts? Of where they stand with the Lord? Of whether or not they truly love the Lord? Show your children that it's not just their parents who have an interest in what's going on with them, but show them that their heavenly Father also has an interest in them personally, in their day-to-day lives, in their hearts. Just as Job's very public sacrifices, you, you really can't hide the smell of a burnt offering, uh, a whole burnt offering, that's the entire animal, hair, skin, it's, it's a pretty public affair. Just as Job's very public sacrifices, his sacrifices as a symbol of prayer for each and every single one of his children would have been a very visible reminder to each of them that God looked down on them, that God cared about them individually, that God cared even about the innermost inclination of their hearts. So too, let your prayers be a reminder of God's love to your children so that your house can be a house of worship, so that your house can be a house of prayer, so that you, by your faithful example and your gentle encouragement, can strive to make your house a house in which God's name is not blasphemed, but is always honored and praised. 
Let reflecting on the example of Job spur you on towards this, brothers and sisters, to honor the name of your God and Father in your lives and in your homes. But don't just stop with Job as an example either. Let this passage be a reminder for you of the bigger picture as well. If we have had fathers who have failed us in this regard, let this be a reminder that we have a more perfect heavenly father who has never failed us and will never fail us. When we have children who do not know the Lord and go their own way, let us turn them over to the care of our father who knows their needs and their cares much better than we ever could. When we fall short, in our parenting, in our leadership, in our guidance, we have a Father who forgives us and redirects and cares for us, who's interested in the innermost thoughts of our hearts, not just so that He can go over them with a fine-tooth comb and catch us in a trap if we sin, but so that He can delight in us when we act out of love that we have in our hearts for Him, so that he can really have joy in the way that we live in his presence or in the love that we share with our neighbor because we remember that he is our father. And more importantly, we have a reminder to us that we have a brother who intercedes for us. Job is not your father. He's not the one who's standing there offering a whole burnt offering for your sin. But we do have our Lord Jesus Christ. He is there. And he's not offering something in case we do something. But he's faithfully standing in the breach that we already made with our own sin. We talk about that in our Heidelberg Catechism, don't we? Lord's Day 18. How does Christ's ascension benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before the Father. He is there for us already, having accomplished his work. And when our hearts wander, he's always there working to bring God's children back by his spirit. He's always there with the holes in his hands and feet as the constant reminder before the throne of God that his work is done. His one sacrifice is completed. He stepped into the breach that we caused by our own sin and he offered himself up as that one perfect sacrifice for sin once for all, having reconciled us to God and now not needing to offer himself up again and again, he remains there. Unlike Job's sacrifice, that was something that had to happen again and again. But his one sacrifice was enough to set things right with our Father. And now he is and remains in heaven as a reminder of that one sacrifice that we have, that one offering that was enough. So let's hold these truths as precious, these much bigger truths that we can see as we step back from just seeing Job as an example. And let's share this as well with our children and with our children's children so that even in the middle of a a spiritually lost and wandering nation, we can, by God's grace, raise a faithful generation. A generation that knows that their Father in heaven is real and that he has an interest in them. 
a generation that's comforted by the fact their earthly parents care about them deeply enough to constantly bring them before their heavenly Father in prayer. A generation that has been taught to have a real relationship with their Father in heaven, to know him, to love him unconditionally, and to trust him unreservedly. And let's model and reflect this same love and care for our Heavenly Father to our children, ourselves as well, as we live with them. If this is true in our homes, and as this becomes true in our homes by the grace of God, then our homes will be lights, shining lights, beacons in this dark world. Lights in our churches, lights in our communities, and lights in the darkness of our nation. Let's strive for such God-centered and God-glorifying homes so that our Father's name might not be blasphemed because of us, but only ever and always honored and praised. Amen.